You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at AllIndianaPodcastNetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message please contact chris spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net thank you for joining us on the leaders and legends podcast our guest today is former lieutenant governor becky skillman becky spent her entire career serving indiana through her roles as an elected official community leader and advocate for rural communities across the state Born in Bedford, Indiana, she is the first woman elected as lieutenant governor in our state's history. Before becoming Mitch Daniels' running mate in 2004, she served 12 years in the Indiana Senate, where she was the first woman to chair the Indiana Senate Majority Caucus. And prior to that, she was elected as both recorder and clerk for Lawrence County. Lieutenant Governor Skillman, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Great to be with you. Well, we also have, as we do for a lot of these discussions, former Wish TV political and statehouse reporter, Jim Shella. Thank you, Jim. Good afternoon. Great to be here. Uh, Becky, what drove you to seek office from a community standpoint? Was it something about growing up where you did, what you learned in school, something the family uh, the family instilled in you or the community? Uh, I would attribute my early involvement to my relationship with my grandfather, quite frankly. Um, I was the firstborn of five granddaughters, and my grandfather and I had a very special relationship from the time I was a little girl He talked to me on his level like an adult. And my grandfather had a very keen interest in politics and in government and to serving your community. Uh, That's the type of conversations we had throughout the years. And uh, so it never occurred to me that I couldn't or I shouldn't run for public office at the ripe old age of 25. Uh, my grandfather and I had discussed, you know, current events and uh, community service for quite some time, and I was always intrigued by that. Uh, just seemed natural. 
And uh, I think I was 26 by the time I actually assumed office, but that's how it all began. I was carrying the banner, however, for the uh, Republican Party while still in high school. One of the questions I ask elected officials when they come on is, and you led me right to it, thank you, is what was your first or earliest political memory or event, something or person you can remember happening or visiting? Uh, well, perhaps you'll get a chuckle from this, but uh, <clears throat> 1974, I was working in the Youth for Luger movement and uh, uh, working with a lot of young Republicans statewide. And of course, I was devastated, just devastated when he lost that first campaign for U.S. Senate. And my mom and dad picked me up that evening at the Republican headquarters in Bedford. I was crying. And they said, now you can't take politics that seriously. <laughs> <laughs> so famous last words, right? Mm -hmm. Did you work for him again in 76 when he actually, ran? Yeah, actually, in 76, we were both. 1976 um, was my first election year. And in fact, Senator Luger and I had such a great relationship for decades and not so long ago. He would mention to my mom and dad that he remembers that 18-year-old girl that was on the ballot with him. And of course... I was 26. I wasn't 18, but. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, you first, yeah, your first run for recorder, it would have been recorder. Is that correct? What was in 1976? That's correct. I served eight years as a Lawrence County recorder uh, during that period, served as president of the Indiana Recorders Association, and then uh, ran for county clerk, served there for 12 years. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, eight years as county clerk. Mm -hmm. But during the latter years of that service, I served as president of the Association of Indiana Counties. So not the county clerks, but all of the county officials in the state of Indiana. And I traveled the state uh, holding district meetings. I lobbied the legislature on behalf of county government, county officials. And uh, that service during the latter years of my county government is no doubt what piqued my interest in running for a seat in the Indiana Senate. Uh, but little did I know that that statewide travel and, and getting to know every county and every county seat and every county <laughs> official mm -hmm. uh, would serve me very well down the road. Did you, you grew up, in, in an era where you had both older, respected figures like Eisenhower and younger, charismatic figures like John F. Kennedy. But what shaped your choice of, of becoming a Republican, of identifying with the Republican Party? My family's involvement, quite frankly, um, Actually, my grandmother and grandfather were very engaged in the local party. Um, my parents attended a few functions, but uh, 
I was, I think, far more interested and engaged in politics and government during that period than my parents were. So I think that was due to my my uh, grandparents' engagement. How much different is it to be from, you obviously lived in Indianapolis on or off when you were in the Senate, but spent more time here when you were lieutenant governor. How would you compare living in an urban environment to perhaps a, a rural environment? Just the people you meet, the pace, the sort of atmosphere? I would not. Uh, yes. I Well, for 20 years, of course, 12 years in the Senate and then eight years as lieutenant governor, I was a resident of Indianapolis. And, and Steve and I actually lived in uh, Greenwood or Center Grove Township for eight years while I was lieutenant governor, uh, was very comfortable and happy there, but I would not trade my small town upbringing, uh, you know, just to grow up in a small town and to have friends and family close at hand. And quite frankly, you know, my, our son I was an elected official before our son was born. And so it meant a lot to have parents who were very close to help uh, with our son. And um, I just wouldn't trade, I wouldn't trade those years. I was, you know, the smaller communities, my mother would tell you that I had to be a leader of everything I touched or participated in throughout the years from the first grade. I think mean, I was, I played Mother Goose uh, in the Mother Goose play in first grade. And in second grade, I actually led the joint second and third grade rhythm bands. And that was a big <laughs> deal. We performed at high school basketball games and you know, was the homecoming queen and the Hoosier girl state delegate. And, you know, the list goes on and on. And it's just, uh, you were, you were, you were, you were homecoming queen. <laughs> I was, yes. You still have your, uh, tiara. No, I don't think so. <laughs> no. What is your, you mentioned Senator Luger and, and he's been the choice of, of so many people. Uh, I've asked this, this question of, in my interviews, uh, and it's interesting, too, because he's probably the most popular choice. And the second most popular choice is somebody who worked for him, a guy by the name of Jim Morris. But is there a particular Hoosier leader and legend you admire? Uh, well, I'm sure we'll get to Mitch Daniels later. So that's let's set that aside <laughs> for the time being. But. Luger was quite the role model for me. And as I mentioned, we had a type of relationship since 1974. And one of the most special times for me was um, uh, while within the last couple of years, he was serving in the U.S. Senate and I was there on state government business. And just the senator and I had lunch in the Senate dining room and uh, caught up on a number of things and shared so many stories. And, uh, you know, that hour, hour and a half will always be very special to me. When you decide to enter politics, you, you just, and it's obviously much different now than it was 1976, but you really decide to put your life on the examination table. 
how has that do you think affected how, why good people don't run for office and did it, it did it give you pause uh it did not give me pause at the time i was terribly excited with the thought of you know serving the people and working in that county courthouse in 1976 i'm very young i have a lot of young friends who would say why would you go to go to work in that old courthouse with a number of blue hairs <laughs> and yet to me, it was, I couldn't think of anything more exciting. Now, I will say you um, know from the outset that your family will likely be far more affected and feel that they are making more sacrifices than you are personally. I mean, my husband is a saint. How would you like to be the spouse of an elected official for 36 years of your married life? No. <laughs> Did you, I, I've always wanted to ask you this question and then I have another couple and then we're going to turn it over to Jim. But uh, did you ever, since you're not in politics anymore, I think I can ask this question. You drove the most darling little Mercedes when you were, <laughs> when you were Lieutenant governor, did anyone ever pressure you to get like something different? Uh, let's just say my chief of staff at the time almost had a heart attack when I drove that onto the state house parking lot. But uh, I have to be authentically me. And my nickname in high school was Hot Rod. I have a bit of a drag racing background. And uh, no, I had three of those little Mercedes sports cars. And yet today, I have a brand new BMW Z4. They stopped making my Mercedes model. Did you? Okay, so before we move on, talk. Let's please talk about the uh, drag racing uh, part of your resume, <laughs> which I didn't find in your official biography or your Wikipedia biography, or, or quite frankly, the biography biography you sent me. Hot Rod Becky is not mentioned. So please uh, articulate for the Leaders and Legends podcast audience. Well. There's likely a couple of things you won't find when you Google me. I was a drummer and uh, and I was a drag racer, but you know, we didn't have many girls sports in my day. And so you had to find a way to be competitive, right? My father always had the neatest hot cars. I could not wait until I was 16 years old to get my driver's license to drive my dad's hot cars. And uh, yes, I did a lot of street racing and or drag racing at the White River Bridge between Bedford and Mitchell. So I think the statute of limitations has fired <laughs> on that. Shella's not doing those stories anymore. So That's you're in good confession. shape. That's my confession. Oh, you, I mentioned at the beginning that you come from Lawrence County from Bedford. So let's. Let's talk a little bit. How did you personally handle and feel when the Bedford North Lawrence High School team under Damon Bailey rose to such prominence, not only in the state, but throughout the country? Wow. Oh, how much time do you have? Okay, so our son 
was in kindergarten at the same school with Damon Bailey in eighth grade. So Steve and I and our son Aaron would attend junior high basketball games at Shawswick and Dick Vitale and Bobby Knight would be present to watch Damon play. So we have quite a history there. And uh, also Damon's parents, of course, were very close friends of ours. Uh, we were there during the state championship basketball game. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think still, if I'm correct, the uh, highest attended high school basketball game in the country. 41,000 people. That's correct. Yep, that's, it's etched in my memory. So how did you take us through, you know, famously, I think uh, Damon Bailey scored either. And we would love to have Mr. Bailey on the podcast, by the way, if you have that sort of power, because we're kind of an IU leaning podcast. Uh, with no disrespect to Gene Katie, who came on Leaders and Legends and was absolutely fabulous. Coach Katie was a terrific guest. Uh, but we've had uh, Ray Tolbert on and Tom Coverdale, and would, would love to have him. So take us through the final minute or so. Damon Bailey, I think, scores like the final 12 or 10 or 12 points to seal it. What was it like for you to be in that audience? <laughs> you know, the one thing I remember <clears throat> is jumping up and down screaming and I was pulling my husband's sweater and he said I'm going to jerk it off his shoulder <clears throat> but obviously a highly exciting moment in Indiana history I thought and so did many other Hoosiers <clears throat> making Indiana history is one of the things that our podcast guest Becky Skillman has done more than once and her time as lieutenant governor was transformative, but she had a public service career before then. And we're going to turn it over to Jim Shella and let him ask her about her time in the most beautiful building in the state. And that's the Indiana state house. I think he knows too much. <laughs> that's <laughs> well, why we have him on. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, I will tell you my lasting memory of you in the state house. Uh, it, it, most folks maybe don't understand that, uh, that building clears out at about five o'clock most evenings. And I would be around to do live reports on the six o'clock news often. And about five o'clock, Lieutenant Governor Skillman would come out of her office on the third floor and start doing laps, uh, just walking around the third or the fourth floor, correct? You're right right about that, Jim. You know, I had to get some physical exercise. I wasn't leaving at five o'clock. I was going back to work. So I would take a break and do laps. It's probably a quarter mile or so when you, you know, do several laps upstairs and it's peaceful and it's quiet. So I was right. You know too much. Nobody there but the TV guys. I did. As long as you want to talk about small town credentials, how many were in your graduating class? Oh, you'll love this. 26. Seriously? Yes. Well, you beat me. I thought I thought I was going to get you there. I had 50 in mind. So. Well, still a lot in common. Um, well, I'm with you on uh, small town upbringing being, uh, being uh, a, a good thing to have. Um, so 
just tell me a little about being a county official, since you actually spent more time as a county official uh, than you did in the state Senate. Low paying, high stress. Why should anybody do that? I love, you know, as a county official, for the most part, I loved being able to take care of people's problems, to make them happy, to look up records for them. And I knew that would dramatically change when I went to the legislature, right? You can't make all the people happy. And and I understood that. But I also enjoyed the fact that, uh, first of all, most of my peers in county government were 30 to 40 years older than I was. But I very early on became the spokesperson for the group of county officials. Um, I uh, sort of pushed for our county officials to be actively involved in the Association of uh, Indiana Counties where you get continuing education. You visit with your peers throughout the state. Uh, You stay abreast of all the new laws. Uh, So I found many ways to make it exciting. You talked about uh, your relationship with Senator Luger. Uh, You went through the Luger series, correct? Actually, I was an honorary governor of the Luger series from the very beginning. Um, Sandy, um, no, no, Sandy. No, no, Sue, uh, Sue Ann Gilroy. Sue Ann Gilroy. In the very first class of Luger series, I wanted to enroll, and Sue Ann Gilroy told me I was overqualified. And, you know, would I like to be an honorary governor? And I said, well, that's fine. I just want to help the program and get more women interested in public service. Well, and for those who don't know, the Luger series was was established by Dick Luger, and it's all about getting women involved in, in public service and politics with an eye toward elected office. And and it's been very successful over the years. And um, many other states have adopted that model as well. And I think Indiana Democrats now have their own version of that. Uh, it's uh, worth copying. Um so you got to the state Senate, and uh, according to your bio, you were the, the first woman to hold that state Senate seat. Uh, what's significant about being the first woman in that case? Uh, that was 1992 when I was first elected to the Senate, and um, this is five rural counties in south-central Indiana, So it was sort of a big deal to have a woman as a state senator. I'll give you an example, Jim, you know, how we host our communities host third house sessions, legislative breakfast throughout the throughout the session. And on Saturday mornings, you would go to these town hall meetings. Well, I'm not going to mention the community, but I would go to one particular community where at the beginning of the program, they would introduce Senator Lewis, Senator Young, uh, Representative Steele, Representative Oxley, and Ms. Skillman. So, uh, you know, I would think to myself, well, why can't I be Senator Skillman? But I'm Mrs. Skillman. It's just a different mindset in those early days. 
And uh, I didn't have to speak up. Some other folks in the audience were appalled, by the way. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, I'm not easily offended, never have been. And you take it all in stride. Who preceded you in that seat? Joe Corcoran from Seymour. And Joe was a retired military, uh, a little bit of a different personality from you. <laughs> yes, that's a fair assessment. And I was the, uh, I was a Republican county chairman at the time and of uh, the county where all the Republican votes were, by the way. <laughs> that's all I'll say about that. Well, it's important to be able to count votes if you want to win an election. I'll say that. <laughs> so uh, 12 years in the state Senate, um, and, and you worked a lot on, on local government issues, which makes sense because that's where you came from. And uh, uh, what, what was your biggest accomplishment? I feel that my entire adult life, including today, has been devoted to helping our smaller cities and towns and our rural counties thrive and grow. I push, push, pushed the administrations at the time while I was in the Senate, in fact, had to uh, author legislation to mandate that the state come up with a rural development strategy and offered to be the one to lead the effort, in fact. Um, and, you know, I had the five counties that had above the state average unemployment. So you had to be innovative and creative and think of ways to help these areas grow, whether it be specific tax advantages for businesses that would locate there. Uh, and, and then, you know, went on as lieutenant governor to create the first ever Office of Community and Rural Affairs that's still in place and doing wonderful things across the state of Indiana. You had the benefit of being in a Republican majority your entire time in the state Senate. And, and I know that currently with a supermajority, uh, that's not always the advantage some people think it is, that the, 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 the leadership has trouble getting everyone to, to fall in line on occasion. But, but during your time, it, it seemed like uh, the, the Republicans were pretty monolithic. Was that an advantage? We had an only, you know, there were only 26, I think, Republicans when I came in in uh, 92. But yes, I would have friends in the House who told me repeatedly I was spoiled for being in the majority for 12 years. Uh, but when you have a very slim majority, it's more pressure on each member, of course. So uh, by the time I left the Senate in 2004, our numbers were much greater. Uh, but as a caucus chairman, I still had a lot of, <laughs> a lot of pressure to deliver. Sure. Um, so in, in 2012, you were, you were named running mate to Mitch Daniels. Uh, no, no, I got no, 2004. I'm sorry, 2004. I misspoke. I meant to say 2004. 
And I want to tell you, um, I had a pretty good run going right about then. I, w- I was able to uh, uh, break the story uh, the day before running mate announcements in a number of cases. And I happened to be on vacation when you were named. I, I, I broke my string. Uh, <laughs> but you were chosen over Pat Miller, uh, Fort Wayne businesswoman, one of the founders of Vera Bradley. Uh, do you know why you were chosen over Pat Miller? She later became Commerce Secretary, of course. Yeah. Oh, love Pat. We had a great working relationship. Uh, we hit it off from the beginning. But I believe, yes, I think I know why. Um, we'll have to ask Mitch Daniels. But <laughs> I had the legislative, he called me the quarterback. He expected me to get our legislative agenda through the General Assembly. I had the legislative relationships in place on both sides of the aisle and in both houses of the General Assembly. And I also knew the real Indiana. I knew Hoosiers from north to south, east to west. Um, Mitch and I had known each other for a while. I think we have complementary personalities, complementary skills and you can ask him, but I think that's why I was chosen. <laughs> well, since you bring up your relationship with Mitch Daniels, I, I think it's important for uh, listeners of this podcast uh, to to know uh, that you had a sense of humor that wasn't always evident to others, but uh, I, I think uh, was best displayed when you introduced Mitch Daniels one night at the, the Press Club Gridiron Dinner. <laughs> Oh, that was fun. One, yeah, of the gr- the- one of the grants of all time. And I have, I have to know who was, who wrote it. Cause he's a longtime <laughs> friend of mine uh, who worked with you on that speech. And he, he said that he said, Becky's sense of humor really, really came through as we were writing that he goes, she had some really funny things she wanted to say. And I'm sorry to interrupt you, Jim, but I just laughed out loud again at the memory of that introduction. Well, I'm pretty sure she's got the the, the key line in that. Uh, I'm guessing you have committed to memory and, and, and I, I got to ask you to repeat it here. Now, are you talking about the first blow? Yes. When I, the shadow. When I, yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> Do you know how difficult it is to walk in Mitch Daniels' shadow and then scrunch down? You know, really difficult. <laughs> you say, I believe you said the sun has to be just right. Uh, yeah, you embellished it a little bit. It was... Uh, um, as someone who has performed at the Gridiron Dinner several times, I can tell you that, that when you get up on that stage, you have no idea if the crowd's going to laugh. Uh, you have By then, you've repeated your lines so many times, they're no longer funny to you. And, and so you, it, it, it brings about a special kind of fear. Uh, but that one hit uh, in, in ways that, that uh, very few lines have. Well, he was also waiting in the wings watching me. And as I recall, I let loose with seven or eight uh, stories. And so when I walked off stage, he said, is that the best you got? (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I like that. Okay, so so you you were the first 
woman, as Robert said, elected as lieutenant governor of Indiana, but you were not the first one to serve. Davis was appointed uh, and you succeeded her. Um, is it important that you were the first woman elected? Or, and if so, tell me why. No, I don't. I don't know that. I don't know that that is important, but it is just a fact that it's part of history. I did have uh, someone bring to my attention not long ago, however, that I'm the only lieutenant governor of the last six that has served eight years. Interesting. Yeah, when you think back, well, I thought it was interesting too. I think that's far more interesting. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, because when you think back, uh, Governor Kernan, as we know, then became governor. And so he did not finish eight years. And then Kathy Davis served 15 months. I served eight years. Sue Elsperman, about three years. Eric Holcomb, year, approximately. Um, and now Suzanne, and she is highly likely to serve eight years, but that would be of the six last lieutenant governors. I, I hadn't thought of that. Significant fact. And now that Lieutenant Governor Skillman has come on the Leaders and po Legends podcast, we have had all living lieutenant governors on the show. Every one. And we're you very know, grateful. The four female uh, lieutenant governors do programs from time to time, and we have great fun at that. You mentioned that Mitch Daniels called you the quarterback. He had a, uh, a substantial legislative agenda, and uh, we're not going to run down the whole list here. Uh, a, a couple of significant things that, that brought about change in Indiana would have been the adoption of daylight saving time uh, and the, the major moves program, the uh, the leasing of the toll road. Um, would, were those the two biggest uh, sells uh, for you as the quarterback? Lease of the toll road certainly ranks among, you know, not only one of the highest priorities, but one of the most, I think, difficult to achieve in the General Assembly. And, uh, you know, we had set that threshold at $2 billion. If the bids don't come in at $2 billion, uh, then it's not worth our effort. In other words, how much black for the jack? And uh, I remember the day the five bids came in and the top bid was 3.8 billion. And Mitch said to me, oh, it's a slam dunk in the legislature now. And I reminded him that we had day long debates over the official state dessert. So I don't think the toll road lease is going to be a slam dunk. And you know, the rest of that story, Jim, it was, uh, a full court press, um, you know, I visited with organizations and labor unions throughout the state of Indiana. Uh, many of us did. I went into, you know, South Bend where we had, I don't know, a dozen troopers uh, at a union hall due to the crowds and the perhaps violence that might occur. So it was just a volatile time. And the seven counties along the northern Indiana Toll Road, uh, you know, felt that that was their asset. And those dollars should not be spent uh, in other areas of the state. 
But when you think about it, more than 1,000 infrastructure projects taking place simultaneously throughout the state of Indiana, many major corridors that would otherwise be on hold. Uh, I am business today. I you know, I have to travel to Evansville a lot, and I-69 is just wonderful, quite frankly. When I was twisting arms to attempt to get the votes, I had no idea that I was going to benefit so much from driving on I-69 to Evansville. So that has to be uh, toward the top. But, you know, folks will mention the Healthy Indiana Plan and property tax reform and the expansive education reform and right to work. I actually think perhaps one of the most significant measures was simply guiding our state through the worst recession, certainly of my lifetime, and then coming out stronger on the other side. While many states were digging out of a hole for a decade. Yeah, Democrats were critical of the size of the the surplus that that Mitch Daniels maintained, uh, he was always very proud of how how big the surplus was. Um, is that a legitimate point of contention? Well, but there's another part to that story. At the same time, uh, we also implemented the automatic taxpayer refund. Now, I think uh, subsequent legislators have tweaked with the percentage of the amount of the refund, but uh, it has served us well. You can't argue with that. Yeah, um, I think major moves has served us well as well. Um, and it's interesting to see what's what's happened with the toll road. I think the, the folks who made that $3.8 billion bid uh, found that they spent too much. They ended up uh, selling it. And I think uh, you wouldn't be able to get that, that price today. No, I agree. Nor were you likely to enter into such an arrangement today, or perhaps the federal government would not let you allow, would not let you uh, move in that direction. Well, Mitch Daniels has been viewed as an activist governor in a state that had very few activist governors. Um, your take, please, on, on his approach to uh, running the state of Indiana. Um, he wanted to be governor for only one reason, and that was to move our state forward to create real results. And I will tell you the first week he set out in that RV to travel the state of Indiana, he called me to come to my Senate district first. And he said, will you ride with me for a couple of days on the RV and introduce me to your constituents? Um, as you mentioned, Jim, I had served with only Democrat governors throughout my 12 years in the Senate. So I was looking forward to serving with a Republican governor in my leadership position in the Senate. And from day one, I knew this was something entirely different and new. We are on that RV. We are in tiny little bergs, crossroads in the country, having biscuits and gravy in a diner with locals. And he was serious about it. He wanted to know how 
Hoosiers felt about their community and what their needs were. But he, he always had his eye on that prize and that was change. Um, activist is absolutely right. There was the clock on his desk that ticked down every moment and would tell us how much time we had left in our first term and then of course our second term. But he packed as much action into every day as possible to get things done. Uh, I, could, I could tell you, the, oh no, I won't. No, go ahead, no, go ahead. <laughs> well, okay. So, you know, he did not like wasting time. So there were times when during special session, and we would be there on a Saturday and a Sunday during special session. So I would preside in the Senate for a period. You know how often you take breaks to get more conference committee reports in. So I would um, preside in the Senate, know he was sitting down there in his office, not happy. And so I'd run down his office to check him. And one day he's just sitting there playing drumsticks with his pencils you know, and uh, biding his time. And he said, you can put my ass in that RV and drive me all over the state for 16 months and I won't get as tired as I am sitting here waiting on the legislature to do something. <laughs> and uh, so, <laughs> I have no doubt. I have no doubt. And it, it, but, uh, it, you know, that's a lesson every governor learns, I do believe. The, uh, they talk about the legislature being a deliberative body. Deliberative is kind. <laughs> no, Mitch would not. And he, you know, he is the first to say he would not fare well in a body of 50 or 100 individuals, including U.S. Senate. And he had the opportunity to be there, but he would not fare well in a body of 50 or 100 individuals attempting to make a decision, you know, and he's the general. Right. I did a story. I did. If I could, just to follow the, the, the thread here, I did a story at one point uh, about how uh, uh, Joe Kernan, um, who was running against Mitch Daniels uh, in his first race, uh, had a had a donor uh, at lunch one day and was telling him about his Southern Indiana strategy and didn't know that Bill Osterley, the, the Daniels campaign manager, was at the next table listening. Um, and and um, as a result, uh, the Daniels folks tried to, to thwart that Southern Indiana strategy. And, and you probably know as well as anybody that Southern Indiana used to be largely Democratic, and now it's largely Republican. Uh, are you surprised by that switch? Um, it's been interesting to watch through the years. You know, I can think back to my early days in the Senate, and Senator Johnny Nugent of Lawrenceburg and I were almost the only Republicans in Southern Indiana. And, uh, you know, over time, uh, so many Democrats switched because Southern Indiana is just conservative. I mean, my Jackson County that I represented in the early days was very democratic, but I always said they were among the most conservative constituents I had. And uh, they found their way home. Much of Southern Indiana <laughs> found their way home through the years. And you know, you're right, heavily Republican today. May I ask a question of both of you, actually? This is why I wanted to jump in very quickly. 
you've you've witnessed multiple governors deal with the general assembly becky you first how was daniels different or was he uh, well um let's just say <laughs> he allowed me to be the coach for our cabinet we had uh, a very impressive lineup of business leaders, many of whom had made their fortune and thought, well, this would be interesting, you know, to provide a public service for a year or two. And then um, I can be grooming someone to take my place. Well, actually, a few of them stayed for the entire eight years, but they some acclimated to state government easier than others. So they needed a little coaching about, you know, approaching the General Assembly, how to do that, what to say, what not to say. Um, Mitch was, you know, he had built a lot of relationships while on the campaign trail, meeting legislators. He did not hesitate to ask for what he wanted and for what we needed uh, and was excellent at doing that, quite frankly. I mean, we met regularly with early on the four of us, Bob Garten, Brian Bosma, myself and Mitch met every week. Uh, as you know, we lost the majority in the house and then it was um, Pat Bauer. Bob Garten, myself, and Mitch, and then as we move forward, David Long and Bosma. Uh, but yes, the I mean the communication was constant. The good, bad, and the ugly. <laughs> Jim, <laughs> well, I think uh, <clears throat> we'd we'd love to hear some of the. Uh, the ugly stories. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, <laughs> I, I want to know more about what went on behind the scenes, but uh, I, I think maybe uh, this isn't the forum for that. Um, at the end of your time as lieutenant governor, uh, you looked at running for governor, put together a campaign for a time. That's that's not an uncommon move. Um, tell me why that, that didn't work out for you. I will, and I'll be brutally honest. Uh, and I was. I mean, I you know, you always can, ten, can continue to raise money. Eric Holcomb's doing it now, right? And so, you know, continue to raise money. I was beginning to think about putting the infrastructure on place. But quite frankly, for more than a year, I couldn't get myself beyond 50-50. Am I going to? Am I not going to? And uh, that's not a good thing, right? because I was so passionate when I ran for every other office along the way. It was like, get out of my way, here I come. And I didn't feel that way this time. And I would rationalize by saying, you know, too much. It's a very serious step. You know, the good, bad, and ugly. You're not supposed to get highly excited about it. Uh, Mitch treated me like his equal. I'd done everything that he had done almost, you know, and I woke up one morning and I thought, you know what? I never announced, 
But I woke up one morning and said, you're just moving forward out of expectation and obligation. You don't want to disappoint your staff and so many friends and supporters. And I knew that was not the right reason to run. And once I made the decision and announced it immediately, I mean, even Mitch asked if I wouldn't reconsider But the moment I announced I was not running and I was dealing with this minor health issue at the time that has since been resolved, but um, I I was so peaceful beyond that time and knew it was the right decision. And little did I know I would go on to have, you know, great reward and service on the private side. Candidates uh, and, and the people who advise candidates often talk about the fire in the belly, and right. what you're saying is you didn't have it. I did not. Um, I did not. I I had it, but I think 36, I had it for 36 years, <laughs> <laughs> and I think 36 years was enough. It's It's very important to know when it's time to go. I have friends who were taken out of office under unfavorable circumstances. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that I knew when it was time to go. Well, and that's maybe the toughest decision that that some people ever make. It's, uh, you know, it's it's always best to go out on your own terms. Exactly. One of the things that comes through in every elected official we'll just keep it there political official i talk to and jim jim and i have talked about this before when people would ask me hey i'm about to have a meeting or a conversation with greg ballard my former boss mayor of indianapolis they're like you know what should i say or ballard's not much on small talk and and i would always say it's really easy compliment his staff and if you compliment his staff, he'll be putty in your hands. It worked every time because Greg Ballard was immensely proud of the group of men and women who who worked for him. I know some of the people who, who have worked for uh, you, Lieutenant Governor Skoma, whether that's my friend Jay Kenworthy or Angela Coates, or uh, I especially want you to say a little bit about the current mayor of Noblesville. <laughs> Uh, but yes. talk about your staff and, and just what they what they mean to you and how they were helpful to you. I could not be more proud of my lieutenant governor staff, where they are today, the kind of people they have become. Uh, it's still surprising when, you know, I see them with three, four, five little children. Uh, That tells me, you know, or I ask the question, where is the time going? But yes, um, Chris Jensen, of course, the mayor of Noblesville. We have kept in, I've kept in touch with all my former staffers, but Chris, um, I see regularly during his primary contest where he had, I don't know, five opponents. I went up to Noblesville, spent the day with him campaigning during that primary and we did a town hall together and the governor and I had a a fundraiser on that same evening and, you know, just had great fun. I knew 
from the outset that he would be the winner because he knows what to do. He knows how to do it. He had a vision for Noblesville. He was so eager to get moving. And uh, you're much closer to the situation and to Noblesville than I am today, but I still follow his uh, movement and his leadership from a distance and couldn't be more proud of him. Well, let me just add that that uh, Chris was the only staffer who I saw join you on those walks around the third and fourth floor. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, someone thought they always had to protect me, and I, you know, unless it's from like a bailiff in the Supreme Court or something, I don't know why they would. Maybe be. a TV guy. Maybe a TV <laughs> guy. Yes, it's TV guys. Uh, <laughs> Chris is the and uh, Molly. There's Molly Whitehead, who is the economic uh, development director, of course, in Boone County, doing an amazing job there. That, you know, so much investment along that corridor, but yeah, just so proud of each one of my former staffers. Well, Chris and I worked together at the Indiana Republican Party under Murray Clark and Jennifer Hollow. And, you know, he's he's probably the one of the most shining examples of good things happen to good people. Yes. Couldn't agree more. Uh, over the last several decades, and Jim has covered many of these folks, there's been a a a strong cohort of of elected Republican women at the state level. Uh, Marjo Laughlin, who is one of only four five Hoosiers to be elected in her own right statewide at least four times, along with people like Richard Luger and. Evan Bayh and Tim Berry. Um, there's also Sue Ann Gilroy and Suzanne Crouch, Connie Lawson, Sue Elsperman. The list goes on and on. Uh, do you have a, a lot of good friendships, a lot of shared stories and experiences with this with this group of remarkable Hoosier leaders? Um, I do. And Connie Lawson is one of my very best friends. Uh, we were county clerks at the same time uh, from our respective counties. We served in the Senate together. We were statewide officials together. And uh, we're going to Tucson together just in a couple of weeks. But I've told her you know, how fortunate she was to have so many women in statewide office around her in the state house. Because during my time, it was myself and five men. And so, uh, yeah, I think she was a little bit spoiled as well. But uh, Sue Ann Gilroy, of course, yes. Actually, uh, Marja Laughlin, I've known since she was in statewide office very early on, clerk of the courts. And uh, a lot, when you think about it, there were a lot of women elected uh, early on in our state's history. You mentioned we talked just a few seconds ago about your staff and and part of being an elected official, whether I think whether you like it or not, and most elect officials do, is you get to mentor younger, and in your case, men and women, but but we'll specifically speak to 
younger Republican women. Jim mentioned the Luger series, which is the penultimate example of sort of mentorship and and getting together and networking. But there's a another terrific list of people who worked for the administration or who have come behind the administration. And whether that's Lauren Mills or, or Betsy Burdick, you have Hillary Egan, you have Jillian Long Battle, Lacey Berkshire, the list goes on and on, right? Sabre Northam. How important is it for you to, to be a mentor, to say, this is my experience and let me tell you about uh, what I've been through and let's make it better together. I do continue to get a number of speaking requests from around the state. And I can occasionally say no, although it's been difficult to do. But when I get, and I continue to get requests from women uh, to serve as a mentor, I rarely say no to that. Um, From many walks of life, I've had women to ask if they could just keep in touch with me every couple of months or so, and if I could, you know, provide advice and counsel, and I'm happy to do that, and especially if they are interested in public service, and there are so many ways to provide a public service, and it does not have to be through elected office. Um, I also serve as a mentor for the Mitch Daniels Leadership Foundation uh, Fellows, and I will tell you, the past two years, uh, I have mentored young men, however, not not women, and that's you know that's been a great experience as well, and uh, a great a great cause and a great foundation. I'm going to jump in here. Go ahead. I just want to offer one more story because I think uh, um, I think it's it's good for folks to know what kind of sense of humor. Becky Skillman has. Um, she and I were both in attendance at Richard Luger's funeral. Um, uh, unusual in some ways because the vice president, uh, Mike Pence at the time, was there. And everyone had to get through security and get into the uh, uh, the church sanctu- sanctuary early. Uh, and then there was time to just mill around. It was uh, uh, you know, a social period. And uh, I, I, we had assigned seating and I had an idea where I was sitting, but not exactly where. And I knew which side of the church it was on. And so I went over there and I, and I saw uh, Governor Skillman and I walked up and we started a conversation, had a very nice conversation. Uh, and then we, uh, the time came to sit down and we were shown where we should sit. And it turns out we were sitting next to each other. And at that point, she turned to me and said, well, I guess that was 15 minutes wasted. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember it that way. (laughs) Hey, hey, Becky, Jim hears that a lot when he's talking to politicians. I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was brilliant. (laughs) <laughs> that was a beautiful service, was it not? I was lucky oh, enough to take P.E. McAllister there, and it was a terrific, terrific service. Uh, yeah, Lieutenant Governor. Wonderful tribute. Uh, and and uh, I'm just laughing at, 
at Jim Morris and, and Mitch Daniels giving each other a hard time from the podium. It's just those kind of things you don't see every day. Uh, and especially us, at a funeral. Especially at a funeral. That's right. Uh, Lieutenant Governor, talk a little bit in the last few minutes before we get to the five questions. What you're doing now, because I know you're still serving the community, still serving Hoosiers. Well, yes. Um, after, le- well, before leaving public office, quite frankly, uh, I expected to serve on perhaps corporate boards, continue all of my volunteer activities. And just six weeks before uh, Governor Mitch and I left office, the president and CEO of Radius Indiana, the eight county economic development corporation, Uh, The CEO passed away unexpectedly at 59 years old. So I had the chairman of the board and another director came to visit me at the state house and ask, could you come home? Would you come home to lead this corporation? And little did they know that Steve and I were already building a new home on Lake Monroe. And, you know, I gave it some thought and decided it would be a great way to help my home region of the state, having these good relationships in place with state government agencies, with federal agencies, with economic development professionals throughout the state of Indiana. I did not pledge to stay in the position for 10 years, however. And so I really enjoyed uh, rebuilding and rebranding Radius Indiana getting these eight counties to collaborate. And, um, and, and then after a four year period, traveling the state, traveling the country, visiting with site selectors, talking about South Central Indiana, I knew it was time for me to, to uh, search for a CEO to take the organization to the next level Uh, which I did in 2017. So I stayed in the role for four years and I continue on as chairman of the board. In fact, we just last night hosted uh, the Consul General of Japan and had all of the mayors and economic development professionals, congressional representatives at a great dinner at the French Lake Hotel, uh, still telling the good story about all of the assets in our region of the state. Uh, In addition to that, I serve as the lead director on the corporate board of Old National Bank. And Old National is the oldest and the largest bank headquartered in the state of Indiana, uh, now serving five states. And we just announced in June a merger of equals with First Midwest Bank out of Chicago. So I've been spending a lot of time, especially during this pending merger, not only in Evansville, but I've been in Chicago as well, and uh, just waiting on the Federal Reserve to approve that merger, and then we'll be a close to $50 billion company. One of the things that you and Jim discussed talking about your elective career was, you know, how much different it was back then. We just, Jim and I just did a podcast with Evan Bai. He talked about it as well. It's been a theme. We don't do big P politics on the Leaders and Legends podcast because we want it to be comfortable and fun. But who were some of your friends on the other side of the aisle as you were serving both in the Senate and as Lieutenant Governor? 
Oh, there were so many. Well, <laughs> there were so many. I, you know, oh my. Okay, so in the Senate, uh, my colleagues, you know, Jimmy Lewis was the caucus chair while I was caucus chair, and we represented nearly same areas or neighbor areas in Southern Indiana. Uh, Richard Young was a good friend. Lyndall Hume was a good friend. Vi Simpson and I shared uh, Monroe County and were together a lot. Um, I think they were all my friends on the Senate side. Senator Lannon and I had mutual friends and Anderson, some of my relatives, by the way. On the House side, Peggy Welch and I represented some of the same areas. And when she was in the majority in the House representatives and I was a majority, of course, in the Senate, we would trade our legislation uh, across the aisle. And she was great to take care of legislation I authored. I did the same for her. Uh, there were just so many friends along the way. One of the things that I've asserted in this podcast and on some TV stuff that I've done is that, and you mentioned it earlier about traveling. And that one of the biggest advantages and positives that Eric Holcomb has as governor is all the time that he has spent traveling the state of Indiana, whether that was chairman of the Indiana Republican Party or state director for Senator Dan Coats or his time working for Mitch Daniels. I joked to him one time, I said, if I just threw a county out there, could you tell me the best dessert, the best tenderloin, the best milkshake? And he laughed. He pulled his phone out. He goes, yeah, I got it all right here. Anytime we travel, it's like Dubois County, where's the best place to eat? How much was that? Do you think that is an advantage for him, a positive for him, as it was, you mentioned a few minutes ago, as it was for you? Yeah, you might call him road warrior. And isn't it good <laughs> that he was able to spend so much time throughout the state? Because as we know, this past year and a half or so, you couldn't visit with Hoosiers. And I, you know, I think. That's just sad to me. I mean, a, one of the most uplifting parts of service. And I always enjoyed when the legislature was over, I could get back out on the road again and travel into communities. And I'm sure the governor has missed that terribly. Uh, and he had to, of course, be be in the state house taking care of business during the pandemic. But uh, I think it's quite a loss as well when you can't visit one-on-one -on -one with Hoosiers. We've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask our guests the same five questions. Lieutenant Governor Becky Skillman, are you ready? I'm ready. What was your first job? My first job was as a dental assistant. You do have a great smile. Is that left over from... <laughs> <laughs> That was not a position I was seeking, by the way. I took my younger sister for her dental appointment, and the uh, dental assistant manager of the office, this was like the day after I graduated, and she asked um, if I would be interested in a job, and I said, well, what did you have in mind? And she said, we could use your help around the office. And that's how it started. 
Did you ever go back to the office after you were a senator or lieutenant governor? I did. I, well, you know, actually, the um, Dr. Bagby passed away. But yes, I still go to the same dental office for my dental care today. <laughs> That's so great. Except Number for two. the period I lived in Indianapolis. <laughs> Number two, what was your first concert? Uh, okay, I can come close. It was either, you know, I lived so close to Indiana University, had great concerts at IU, and it was either um, the rock band Chicago or it was Elvis almost a year before he passed away. If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Keeping the Republic by M.E.D. Mitchell E. Daniels, Jr. And you said recommend a book, so perhaps even more relevant today than when he wrote it. A great point. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Um, if, if I had witnessed the first man on the moon, then I would have been the first woman on the moon. Isn't that right? <laughs> that is correct. No, I just think it would be terribly exciting to go where no one has gone before. Number five, last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, talk about anything you want, whom would you choose? Well, this might not be at all what you would would expect because it's authentic and I could actually make it happen and it is long overdue. I need to follow up with my good friend, Congressman Lee Hamilton. Lee and I chaired the State Bicentennial Commission for five years. We had a great friendship and partnership My old Senate district sat nearly inside his congressional district, so we've known one another for decades. But since 2000, the end of 16, when the bicentennial celebration ended, I've been derelict in following up with him. Uh, So, Robert, I think I'm going to call my friend Lee Hamilton. I, you know, I think one of the reasons we had such such a special relationship is because we both served during a period where we had great friends on the other side of the aisle. We knew that we had to compromise to move the state forward or to move the nation forward. We knew we were not going to get 100% of what we wanted but we made great progress along the way. And Lee Lee and I have had lunch many, many times, but not recently, and I need to catch up with him. I can only imagine how amazing two hours off the record uh, with Lee Hamilton would be. He came to Bedford to speak for me. I, uh, I host, it was not my idea, but Lawrence County hosts a Becky Skillman Leadership Institute for one full day every summer and we have speakers that come in to provide inspiration and Lee Hamilton has 
accepted my invitation. And he has spoken at that institute. Mitch Daniels has spoken at the institute. Dan Coates. And the list goes on and on. And it's not a partisan thing, obviously. Uh, many celebrities and athletes and uh, others have, have uh, Karen Pence, by the way, in her first year as second lady came to speak at the Institute. Uh, Bedford had not quite dealt with Secret Service like, uh, <laughs> like that day called for, but it was an interesting day. Jim, do you have a final thought for Lieutenant Governor Skillman? You know, I just think it's been a great conversation. I've enjoyed talking to you. Great to see you again. You've been my entirely. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Along with co-host Jim Shella, our guest has been former Lieutenant Governor Becky Skillman. Thank you so much for your time and the stories. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.